we're going to do a series on what it means to be a healthy churchman. What does it mean to be a healthy churchman? Before we do that, I was um, thinking of a, a lecture to ministerial students that Charles Spurgeon gave. He called it, Pastor Charles Spurgeon establishes that a gospel preacher must first believe the gospel. <laughs> I remember when I first was reading the book, I thought, this is a really cute way to put it. Like, how about like some divine rhetoric? Some divine rhetoric. Let's get down to business. How do you make your gospel beautiful? But he explained in this first lecture, the world is full of counterfeits and swarms with tenderers to carnal conceit who gather around a minister as vultures around a carpet. And I thought, that sounds funny. That sounds like Hosea sounds like Israel, and there's false leaders surrounding Israel, because what they are, are dead, is a dead body. Spurgeon begins his lectures with an exhortation to his students to examine themselves, which is called self-watch. Keep a watch on yourself first. Even when instructing ministers, the heart of right doctrine is always, always, and forever the heart of man. When teaching preachers, Spurgeon understands that the place to begin is with this question. Do you believe? This is instructive for all of us, especially given that this new series, Healthy Church Membership, focuses a great deal on externals, on outwardness. I'm going to talk a lot about the things we do as healthy church members. So we must ground our outward actions on the, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Before we start talking about what we're going to do, we're going to talk about who we are. Liturgy, tithing, praying, baptism, community life, membership covenants, church attendance, doctrinal sophistication, none of these are the grounds of our justification. None of these establish or maintain our standing in the body of Christ, the community of the King of Kings. External actions cannot be separated from internal reality. So we start talking about external, we've got to get the internal right. Spurgeon, in the same lecture, continues with this. Thousands are congratulating themselves and even blessing God that they are devout worshippers, when at the same time they are living in an unregenerate, Christless state, having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He who presides over a system which aims at nothing higher than formalism is far more a servant of the devil than a minister of God. I have noted that is drag the idol of formalism out in front of us and slit its throat so that it can bleed out. That we can put it away and be done with it. Close the door on it. Formalism is not what we're here for. To address what a healthy church member is, we must drag this idol out and deal with it. This is the way to put Satan to flight in the name of Jesus Christ so that we can talk about some important church practices. We must work outward from the heart. Now, we take our marching orders, though we love the Prince of Preachers, as they called Spurgeon, we love him. Our marching orders, what he, is, what he is doing here is what the apostles instructed us to do. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? We must examine ourselves humbly, not morbidly. We must remember the history of our people. If we don't remember the history of our people, we will repeat it. Stephen delivered a sermon about the long history of the people of God, resisting the spirit and making an outward show of their religion, 
the type whose justification was, our father is Abraham. We have the law of Moses. We have the temple. We are the sons of the prophets. Deacon Stephen addressed the hypocrisy of Israel in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, generalizations, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then they proved his words by killing him. And they were the people of God. They were the Israelites. They had all of the trappings. They had all the externals. Later on, when Paul's going to prove that he really is a Hebrew, he's going to say all the things that they were saying about who they were. And Stephen says, listen, stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and heartened ears, you are always going about justifying yourselves, boasting in the externals, while internally you're as dead as a coffin nail, which is deader than a doornail. I don't understand doornails. I mean, a coffin nail seems right there anyway. Somebody messed up real bad when they wrote that. We must examine ourselves. This is the test. Are you justified? Why? This is what I call the pronoun test. Think of Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I, I, I. I am sinless. I fast. I tithe. I get. Now, when I ask you, are you justified? Is this how you respond? I'm baptized. I believe. I go to church. I eat properly because my body is the temple of the Lord. I homeschool, which I actually received as an answer once. Like the Pharisee, our pronoun is the problem. It's a subtle heresy and idolatry. We reflexively begin with I, looking to ourselves, boasting in ourselves. Compare this to Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He washed us with regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, he, 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 he regenerated, he washed, he poured out, he justified. When it comes to our justification and our standing before God, it's not I, me, it's he, him. And this is our pronoun problem. And this is where the world learns to have a pronoun problem, an identity problem. We fail this test all the time. Our, our pronoun problem is far more profound than the world's, and ours is of greater shame and the root cause of the world's pronoun problem. Just like the world, we have an identity problem, a pride problem worse than any queers marching in June. You, we can say whatever we want about it. Our pride, their pride has got nothing on us, nothing. Oh, look at them. They can't figure out if it's we, they, us, him, he, her. 
They, they can't figure it out. Look at how stupid it is. And then I ask you, are you justified and you can't get your pronouns right? <laughs> and I think, well, there, there you go. That's where they learned it. Through our failure to see our self-justification, we are incapable of offering Christ's free justification to a hurting and broken world. We teach the world to get their pronouns wrong. Failing to comprehend our identity in Christ, we model to the world the idolatry of resting and hoping in false identities. The doctrine of justification by grace through faith, our standing before the triune God is he, him, not I, me. And until we can pass this test, we are not healthy church members. Until we can get our pronoun problem fixed, we cannot begin to work on the pronoun problems plaguing the world. Leave them alone. You have nothing to offer them. You go to them and you say, look at this false identity that you're resting in. All the while, you are resting in a false identity. That, my, my friends, is what they call hypocrisy. This is what Jesus confronted all the time. Now, Jesus doesn't care about what you've done. He does not care. If he did, you wouldn't be here. I can't say this enough. If he actually cared about what you have done, you would not be here. So how could that possibly be the reason that you stay here? It didn't get you in the door, and ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't keep you in the door. He doesn't care whether you are baptized or go to church if he hasn't justified you. If he hasn't washed you, then the minister just dumped tap water on your head and doubled down on your damnation. If Jesus didn't die for you, that's just the crumbs of a Hawaiian roll that I bought at Fred Meyer. And it's eating away at your heart from the inside out. If Jesus didn't climb out of the tomb for you, your homeschooling is just a means of raising twice the sons of Satan that you are. If Jesus didn't ascend with you in him, when you pray, you're just talking to yourself. This is the, we have got to address this problem if we are going to be the people of God, if we're going to offer anything to the world. Now, some of you might be thinking, my goodness gracious, Mike, you're a minister. You're, why are you trashing the sacraments? <laughs> why are you trashing Bible reading? Why are you trashing the very things every week that you tell us to do? Well, Doug Wilson, of course, <laughs> explains in his book against the church. So this is why a minister might want to trash a man's baptism or his diligence in communing or his Bible study skills or his theological acumen or his prayer warrior status or his tithing prowess. Why? So that it might rot in the ground and rise again to newness of life. Anything and everything that is the basis of your justification before the triune God other than Christ, needs to be dragged to the foot of the cross, lifted up, and nailed to it. Don't wait any longer. And if you do that, it will die and rise. If you do that, then your baptism means something. If you do that, then that roll is more, right? Then you're eating more than the crumbs of a Hawaiian roll. The pronoun that is the source of so much doubt and self-justification is that chief idol, self, I. The Old Testament saints often put their confidence in the fact that they were the people of God. They had the Lord's temple in their midst. They zealously brought their sacrifices of steers and bullocks before the Lord. 
But the true prophets always had to warn the people of God, as did the prophet Jeremiah in his book, chapter 7, verse 4. This is what he had to tell them. Do not trust in these deceptive words. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah goes on to tell them that just as Yahweh had destroyed Shiloh, the tabernacle, because of the evil priests of Eli's house, he would again destroy the idols of the people, even if it was his own house. When it comes to the justification of his people and understanding what their basis is standing before him, he, he will trash his own house. He doesn't care. It ceases to matter to him. He doesn't care that you follow Leviticus if, you, if your heart is far from him. Jeremiah addressed the people this way. And this is what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 11 when he goes to the temple. He wants to remind everyone of the words of the prophets. They came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Where does Jesus get off trashing the temple? Jesus goes into the temple and shuts it down. Now, I thought that was only something Jay Inslee did. <laughs> but if Jesus is going to do it, what does that tell us about what's going on? And does, does that tell us anything about what's going on to us right now at the, at the moment? Why might he be doing that? Right? We're, we're, <laughs> we're quick to load the rhetorical gun and start shooting at secularists because they hate us. But has is, is it ever crossed our minds that maybe God hates us? And why would he do such a thing? If we open his word, it tells us. It's because we're looking to anything and everything other than him as our standing before God. John chapter 2, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that zeal will often result in trashing the sacraments, trashing the temple, to get at the heart of man, to circumcise ears and circumcise hearts, because that is the heart of the issue. The Pharisees said that they were sons of Abraham because they were circumcised. And Jesus said in Luke 3 that God could make children of Abraham out of rocks because that's what he always does, minimizing their sacrament as a hollow symbol. Jesus trashed the sacrament of circumcision to circumcise hearts and ears. I will trash baptism as much as I have to to baptize hearts and minds. Are you justified? Why? Why are you justified? Can you answer that question? And how often would you begin with I, me? We can expect nothing less of God. He has not changed regarding our own baptisms, our Bible reading, our church attendance, our church building. God will destroy the idols of his children's hearts, and that can happen by closing them down through pastors kowtowing to the state, or burning them to the ground at the feet of Roman legions, or what is going on right now at the feet of Canadian mobs. Does anyone know why they're burning churches all across Canada and why everyone is letting them do it? Did you know that it was happening? The Lord will not be mocked. He will not stand with people who refuse to stand on him. Wealth, worship, church attendance, knowledge, a hearty diet, none of these things are our justification. 
Let the hearer understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. We can't be reminded of this enough. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to, to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is your boast? What do you boast in? Have you heard me boast of anything lately? What do I boast in? Have you heard one another boast lately? What are, you, what are they boasting in? Pastor Toby Sumner wrote very prophetically, Religious people have a bad habit of hiding from Jesus in piles of religious trappings with God words and whatever the Jesus halo happens to be in their church ghetto. Tucking their shirts in, fat theology books, homeschooling, ancient liturgies, Christian rock bands, Hebrew tattoos, organic farming, whatever. When this happens, we begin to serve idols. What are the Jesus halos of your family? Is it your co-op? Is it your CC group? Is it your book study? What are the Jesus halos of Redeemer? All these guns that we own? Conservative politics, right? I can show you my cards. I've been voting Republican a long time. Is it even perhaps our traditional family values? Is it even our good marriages? Is it the size of your family, your modesty, your stable marriage, your biblical literacy? Well, I would never be like those dummies. I would never dress like a whore. Is that the thing that justifies you? Is that your standing before God? Is he so impressed with what you're pulling off? This is another way of considering that ancient truth from a, a man who all too often is an idol for conservative Christians, John Calvin. He said this, and, then, and they went right out and did it with him. He said, hence we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual force of idols. Of whom was Calvin speaking? Right? When we hear that, we know, oh, man, pff, turn on CNN. We'll watch. Look at them. They're just like up there hammering away. Turn on ESPN. Turn on the TV. Let's go down to the supermarket. Idols, idols, idols. Look at them. They're forging them everywhere. He couldn't possibly be talking about you and I, right? See, and this is what's... He's not just talking about the baby-killing liberals and commies and sexually perverse people out in the world. He's talking about, <laughs> he's talking about some, some of you were like that, but now you're washed, right? And so now what you do is you make more sophisticated idols. You make idols out of the things he gives you, right? They make idols out of the things God gives them, and you're like, oh, well, we can't have those idols. We're going to turn from that, and we're going to turn to God. And then it doesn't take long, and you come into the house of God, and you start making idols out of the things in the house of God. We even make an idol out of Jesus. Now, you may wonder, how in the world is that possible? Well, there are these other two called the Holy Spirit and the Father. And what we tend to do is forget about them and make it about Jesus, our boyfriend. And Jesus himself has become some sort of weird idol to modern Christianity. I can hardly understand it. And I sound like a nut when I say that, but that's fine. That's why they pay me the big dollars. Unbelievers make idols out of their job and their Xbox and their sex and their drugs. Believers tend to make their idols out of the liturgy and the backbeat and the calfskin-covered Bible and their obedience. 
right? And we think that's not idols because those things are given to us by God to serve him. How could it ever be an idol? And then somebody comes along and asks the impertinent question, are you justified? You say, well, I mean, have you seen my Bible collection? I mean, I smell cigars all the time. I don't understand. I'm so super reformed. Super reformed. We got a backbeat. Are you justified? Why? What are you boasting in? Why? What are your idols? What are they forged out of? Now, what I want to do is look at a few possibilities. <laughs> There's a few. Modern, middle-class Americans. There's a few options that might be common idols amongst all of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Knowledge puffs up. Reformed theology, as we like to call it, those of us who are reformed, is the thinking man's faith. <laughs> right? <They're laughs> people who can think are reformed. That's what we like to say. We're so humble. Because it's full of robust teaching. And to this fact, add, add that most of the people in this room have had some level of college education. But we also have that Gnostic secret knowledge. Don't we? How many of us really know what's going on? We really know what's going on with vaccinations. We really know what's going on with the Fed. We really know what's going on with GMOs and public schools and naturopathic medicine and Big Eva and mass media and the doctrines of grace. We get what critical race theory is all about. We know what BLM's real game is. We get that there's a deep state. We understand what's going on with food processing. And is this at all possible that we turn it into an idol? Look at those dummies getting the poke, the big poke. I know what's going on. I'm not having any of that. It couldn't possibly be an idol, could it? Knowledge couldn't possibly puff up. We know the man behind the curtain. We know what he's wearing. We can tell you what he had for breakfast. We know what's really going on. And it's more than possible that all this knowledge, all this understanding that we've attained elevates us above everybody else who doesn't have it. possible that we might believe the lie that it demonstrates just how much better and wiser and more obedient to Jesus we are. Man, if these people just woke up. We say to ourselves, thank you, Lord, for not making me like those mask wearers and those liberals and those Christians who put their kids in public school and those morons who eat organic or won't eat organic. Depends on which half of the church I'm talking to. Now, if you add to this our wealth, we really start to get somewhere. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 20. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grow fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Knowing, well-fed, and rich. This couldn't possibly describe any of us, could it? No, no idle forge here, baby. We're good. No, it's those guys out there who, who, it's the men who wear dresses and the people who want socialized medicine. They're the ones who don't get it. Those people with their pronoun problem. It's out there, out there, out there, instead of considering the fact that it's in here, in here, in here. Now, you add to this, believe it or not, church attendance. Now, some of you, 
Even COVID couldn't keep you away. Some of you may have even been here. I wasn't here. Some of you have not missed a service for weeks. I remember seeing this once myself. I went like three years one time without missing a church service. And I remember bragging a great deal about that. And I hear it. Our consistency, especially when so many have made a habit of forsaking the gathering of the saints, we justify ourselves in our own eyes. I keep Hebrews 10.25. What's wrong with you? None of these are standing before God. None of them. Now, add to this our obedience. Luke 18, 18 through 23. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, how many of you can say that? I actually, I think a great number of you can. I, I know most of you. You're not like me. I was converted at 25. I, I had committed probably all these sins in thousands, willingly, hopefully, <laughs> at one point in my life. But I'm getting to know some of you. Some of you would be the guy standing there and being like, oh, man, those are the rules? <laughs> Done. I was homeschooled. I was raised by Christians. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't glare at anybody else's wife. I keep all these things, Jesus. It's you and me, buddy. Let's go to church. Your works are not what got you in here. They're not. And they're not going to prevent Jesus from throwing you out the door you walked in. What we need is the wisdom of Job. Job chapter 9, verse 20. If I justify myself, mine own mouth shall condemn me. If I say I'm perfect, it shall also prove me perverse. Daniel appeals to the tender mercies of God, not his own righteousness. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 18, Isaiah confesses that his good works are literally filthy rags, a prophet. In Psalm 130, verse 3 through 4, the poet says that if the Lord were to mark iniquity, none could stand. He doesn't say, right, everyone outside of the church can't stand, and some of the people in the church can stand. He says none can stand. No one. None of you. If God marked iniquity, none of you would be here. You're here because he doesn't mark iniquity. That's why you're here. That's the only reason you're here. And if you carry on in that fashion, you will remain under the end and go and live with him forever. But if you start thinking the only reason you're here is I, me, you have got a serious problem, and all I can do is say, repent. Repent and believe the gospel that you first believed. It's not I, me. It's he, he, he. Now, my immediate objection when I heard this, you might be wondering, doesn't Jesus say that a Christian will bear fruit, Mike? Aren't we told to go do good works? Doesn't he tell us not only are we supposed to, but that we actually will? Yes. But even here, this is where, again, you get a little further into this and you see just how bad our pronoun problem is. We can bear fruit because we are branches of the vine, right? No branch up high in the tree boasts in the fruit that it can produce, forgetting the fact that it's attached through the trunk to the root in the ground and it's held up by something else. No branch all by itself can produce fruit. We are rooted and grounded in love, it says in Ephesians 3.17. We bear the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say you bear the fruit of an obedient son. He doesn't say you bear the fruit of a good Christian. He says you bear, right? What you do is you 
what he produces in you is the fruit of the Spirit. It comes from outside of yourself. So even when you do good works, it's he, him. Why did I do this thing? He, him. Why, why was I able to forgive, forgive this person? He, him. Why was I able to be charitable? He, him. Why am I showing hospitality? He, him. We do good works pre- prepared for us beforehand. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our works were prepared beforehand by God. We cannot receive them bitterly or ungratefully. We cannot boast in them. This is the, the two ditches we all have. Oh, look at this thing I've, I've got to do. I can't conceivably do it. I'm totally overwhelmed. And, and we, we, we stress ourselves out and we grow so anxious we can't deal with it. And it's the thing the Lord prepared for us to do. Don't shy away from the thing he gave you to do. He wouldn't have given it. <laughs> he wouldn't give you something to do that he wouldn't then also give you the ability to do it. Marriage, child rearing, your job, your vocation, your neighborliness, all of it. You can do it because he prepared it beforehand for you and gives you the strength to do it. Now, with the, the other ditch, well, look at all this stuff I did. You're like, well, you didn't, you weren't even there when he prepared this plan, right? You're just walking along, finding this stuff lying on the side of the road. That's what your works are. Every time you do a good work, think, man, I just, look at this thing I found on the side of the road. The Lord left here for me. This is amazing. I remember I, I, I'm notorious for running out of gas. So much so that my wife, like, hides money in the car because then I'll spin on tobacco or candy. But if I don't know where it is, it's there when I need to get gas. But I remember literally running out of gas one time, and there was a gas can on the side of the road. And I think of that when I think of this, right? God knew exactly where I was going to run out of gas, and he left a can there. How? I have no idea, right? Who do I pay back for this? I actually used what, just a little bit and left the can there because I was like, I'm not even going to take this for myself. I'm going to leave this here. Maybe this is like a place in the neighborhood. Everyone knows you run out of gas here. I don't want to mess with that equilibrium. But when, you, when someone says, please forgive me, and you forgive them, there that was prepared for you beforehand. You can't shy away from it, therefore, and you can't boast in it. It's not yours. You found it. It was given to you. All you can do is receive it. Paul told the Philippians that godliness is not something to be grasped, and so why are we grasping after it? Heaven isn't a thing to be grasped. You can't climb up there by yourself. None of this is is stuff to be grasped. It's all things to be received. Everything that we're going to talk about, all the way through this whole series, all of it, when Jesus comes, if you receive him, you receive the Father. Everything else that you receive from him, then, is you receive the thing from him, you're receiving him. And all you can do is receive. That's it. That's all you can do. There's nothing else that you can do except stand there with open hands. That's the only option. You can't boast in anything. You can't generate the works yourselves. You can't save yourselves. You can't forgive people on your own. You can't love people on your own. You can do nothing. Jesus is our standing. It's a he, him. That's your salvation. That's your justification. You're here because of he, him. Not I, me. Now, now, what we need to do, we've heard what justification isn't. But now let's consider what it is. 
And this is from the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question 70 is, what is justification? And this is what our people have always understood justification to be. This is a very good definition. Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners, in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. Now, did you, right? That's a definition in which all you do is receive. You don't do anything except stand there with open hands. And frankly, God had to come down and pry your hands open. But that's a sermon for another day. <laughs> like, no, no. It's like trying to get the toy out of your kid's hand. Just open the hand. Oh, oh, grace. Oh, that was what you were going to give me. Justification is a legal and relational declaration that God makes. And all you can do is receive it from him. All you can do is hear it. Now imagine, this is what it is right here. This is justification. You are a condemned criminal before God the judge. You're, you're there. You're expecting the penalty of execution for your crimes. Right? For me personally, this is very personal because it was standing in a courtroom receiving a just judgment because I wanted to plead guilty uh, that, that opened my eyes that, I, that this was exactly what Jesus was doing for me. If you ever want to know what your justification looks like, go to a courtroom and just sit there for a while. It's a lesson to all of us. You're, you're there. You are accused. You know you're guilty. You know it's coming. You're going to be put to death. And your lawyer suddenly stands up and says, listen, I'm going to take this for him, okay? I'm going to be executed on his behalf. And you think, what? And it's this conversation in which you're having no part. The advocate is talking to the judge, and the judge says, oh, that's the case. Not guilty. Joyously, he cries. And then the, the judge and the lawyer are hugging one another, and they get you in there in that bear hug, and then you go live for eternity in joy. That's what your justification is. You're standing there passively watching a courtroom in which you should be put to death, but these other two have worked it all out ahead of time. Christ died in our place. This is not a legal fiction. It's not a false judgment. It's not just an idea. This is actually what happened. They worked this plan out together that despite what you have done, the son, the advocate, would take it in your place. Therefore, you're not guilty. Jesus really did satisfy our debt of sin, turning away the wrath of a just and holy God, making him our loving father. So this is, again, always where it breaks down. I worked in a courtroom, <laughs> you know, taking notes. The judge is merciful for some reason sometimes I could not understand. And they say the guy is free to go. You know what never happens? Is that he takes him back to the judge's chambers and they have like a meal together. That's never what happens, right? It's usually the person who's received the, the, the verdict is like can't wait to get away. But it's like not only is, does this process happen, we are then taken into the household of the judge. He makes the father our loving father. It's, it's more than just a courtroom scenario, but it's not less than that. In Christ, we are, we are really innocent and righteous because he is innocent and righteous. He really doesn't care what you've done. Your justification isn't I, me, it's he, him. It's despite all that you have done that you are here and remain here. Stop looking to the externals and circumcise your heart and eyes with this truth. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He, 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 he. he could he fit more he's into, the, into that paragraph? It consists of your forgiveness of sins. Because of Christ, God takes your sins away, so that they may never be brought up again, that they will not keep you from him, that you will not be punished for them. Jesus really doesn't care what you have done. Whatever disgusting, filthy, dishonest, hateful sin you committed, not in your former life, but this morning. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. You call it what he calls it, and he'll call you by his own name. That, it's as simple as that. You want the gospel? You call what you've done what he calls it, and then he'll call you by his own name. Romans 4, 6 through 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But this is the triune God. This is the triune God we're talking about. Okay? Not Jesus, our boyfriend. Not some mystery. And this is the part, too, that I, I, we all miss all the time. It, he never takes something away and just leaves it at that. Oh, sins? Okay, I'll take those. And then that's it? No, this is the triune God we're talking about. <laughs> he never takes something away without replacing it with something more, bigger, better. He takes so that he can give. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And I'm really confused. I always am by this because I thought the all, th all things was in the first half of this verse. He gave us Jesus, and then he's going to, because of that, we're assured he's going to give us all things? What more could he possibly give us? He imputed Christ's righteousness to us. He has fulfilled the great exchange. Just as in Adam we all died, just as in Adam we're all going to hell, so in Christ we all live and we are all going to heaven. You're not just going back to Eden. You're not going to just go live in a garden on a high mountain somewhere in the Middle East eating fruit that grows off trees. You're going to go to heaven. God the Father gave the most precious object in existence to pay your debt. 1 Peter 1, 18-19, Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Right? There you go. He did it. He gave his son. He gave the blood. He paid the debt. Here it is. Take it. And yet, he adds to it. He doesn't just take away your sins. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to you wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. 
So let me get this straight. So not only am I no longer a sinner, right, going to hell in Adam, I actually get to be wise now? Like, how how did you add that to the deal? Wait, wait, wait. So I'm justified, but now I also get to be sanctified? You're going to add on to it? Like, it's not enough that you just say, okay, you're going to actually make me a new thi- like a new creature that, that shares in the divine essence? <laughs> Every time I do something wise, I'm like, man, he wasn't kidding. Back and started, it wasn't just to get me out of the darkness I was living in. He was, like, adding stuff to it. Shocking. It's like, I don't deserve this. Like, I understand that he took away the sins I did deserve so that I just don't die in hell. But now he's, like, adding all this other stuff onto it where, like, people ask for advice and I actually have advice to give. Like, wow, that's, this is like, I, this is more than I bargained for. I thought I was just giving something up. Jesus is our substitute. He died on the cross. He accepted the wrath of God. He took away the sins of the world. He is justifying you. He's sanctifying you. He is purifying you. He is your wisdom. He is your joy. He is the song in your heart and on your lips. He, he, he. It's not I, me. Are you justified? (laughs) Why? Not because of your works. Not even because of your faith. This is, I can't say it better than this. This is John Frame, the theologian. He says, I have said that although justification is by faith alone, faith is not the ground of justification. Only Christ is the ground of justification. What role then is played by faith? Faith is what receives the grace of God in Christ. So theologians have described its role as instrumental. Faith claims no merit for itself. It makes no claim to deserve the gift of God's righteousness. It confesses that only Christ can save and only his righteousness can justify. There is nothing in us that deserves justification. Nothing. Not even your faith. Our faith is a work of God. Now, this is a subtle thing, but listen. John chapter 6, verse 28 through 29, the apostles ask a good question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe. Oh, so it's not, oh, it's his, okay, it's his work. It's he, 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 not I, me. Okay, good. I'm glad we covered that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Justification is a gift. It's received, not grasped. Christ is the generous giver to be boasted of. He is the only boast that we have. It's him, 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 he, 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 Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Get rid of everything else. God calls our sins by their name and you by his name. Do the same. If you, that, that's, the, that's the gospel. That's the lesson. Go from here and be justified. Call your sins what he calls them and call yourself by his name. Repent of your pride. Repent of your apathy. Repent of your presumption on divine grace. Repent of your pronoun problem. Be justified by grace through faith in Christ alone and nothing else. Everything we do flows from this. It isn't I, me. It's he, him. And so, ladies and gentlemen, go and be justified. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you taught us what to call our sins, Lord, that we may confess them to you. And we, we thank you, Lord, that not only did you make us your own, you, you, 
you have justified us. You have, you're sanctifying us. Everything that we have is Jesus. Everything that we have comes from Jesus. Our whole standing is Jesus. Teach us, Lord God, to not call ourselves by our own names, but call us by the name of your Son, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, who sits at your right hand. And amen.